Over the last 600 years in England, the British nobility have constructed some of the most beautiful country estates imaginable. Grand houses in all the styles of classical and Victorian architecture, surrounded with enormous estates, sometimes tens of thousands of acres on rolling green hills, wooded groves, beautiful rivers and ponds, and all the wildlife you'd expect on such a property. To keep these estates intact, the families followed the law of primogeniture, in which the firstborn male would inherit the entirety of the estate, rather than dividing it amongst all the children. These estates, enormously costly affairs, often full of magnificent art collections and dozens of full-time servants, were funded largely through the income of the surrounding land, which would be profitably farmed by tenant families. Some of these estates can still be seen today, such as Windsor Castle, Hampton Court Palace, Blenheim Place, Chatsworth House in Derbyshire, of Pride and Prejudice fame, or Highclere Castle, the real setting for the fictional TV series Downton Abbey. I remember visiting some of these castles and manors as a lad of about eight or nine, when my family was stationed in London for my dad's officer exchange service with the Royal Air Force. And they are unbelievably stunning places to visit. But most of them, and in fact, probably at this point, the vast majority are long demolished, land parceled out, and gone. So what happened? Well, lots of things happened. After World War II, for example, to attempt to rebuild its destroyed and debt-crippled government, the Brits raised inheritance taxes, called estate duty, to 60%, then 80%, even hitting an all-time high of about 85% in the late 60s. This meant that fathers couldn't pass these estates on to their eldest male heirs without also passing on a tax bill that was often in the tens of millions of pounds. But many of them were destroyed long before that. You can see how it might happen, right? An unwise son inherits the land and gets himself in money troubles with gambling or women or unwise business dealings and thinks to himself, I'll just sell a few hundred acres on the outskirts of the estate. That will more than cover the bills. And after all, it's the house that really matters. I don't know why he was Cockney. He'd probably have a better accent than that. Anyway. Cockneys don't have money, I thought. They don't, they don't I have thought no, they were more like gypsies. They don't got no money. Sorry, I money. just ruined your cold anyway, open. Anyway, continue. continue with the cold open. Slowly, little by little, generation by generation, the grand estates were whittled down from these magnificent 10,000-acre glorious estates to grand houses sitting on small islands of land, and then ultimately with even the houses being demolished. And here's the problem that led to even the houses falling to ruin. It's the land's income could no longer support the house. So it had to be sold, demolished, or fall to ruin. Small compromises, small retreats, little by little, can eat away the grandest of estates. And the Christian faith is like that. Oh, they're attacking the doctrine of marriage? No big deal. It's justification by faith alone that really matters. What? They're coming for the doctrine of creation ex nihilo? Well, we can give that up, can't we? Why, why fight there? After all, as long as they believe that Christ rose from the dead, what's the harm in sprinkling a little bit of evolution into our theology? It's this folly that has so often sold away the heart of the Christian faith, the heart of the inheritance of faith, leaving nothing but the derelict ruins of something that was once grand and glorious at the center, surrounded by hostile forces and soon to fall. If we're to build the new Christendom, we must retake the outlying lands. The King's Hall podcast exists to make self-ruled men rule well and win the world. Well, I'm Brian Silvey. I'm here with my friends Dan Burkholder, Eric Kahn, and today we are continuing the work 
to which we intend to put our hand in this first season of the King's Hall, which is the work of new Christendom, of building this great cathedral of Christendom. And as you know, if you've been following along with us here in this first season, that work has to begin by clearing our job site of all sorts of evangelical shanty towns and shoddy workmanship that has been thrown up over the last few centuries. Things that will need to go if this new cathedral of this new Christendom cathedral rather is to go up. Today, we'll be talking about another one of those strip malls that needs to be dismantled. And this is another one, surprise, surprise, that really came to a zenith in the 20th century, so fairly recently. And that is theological minimalism along with its attendant cultural syncretism and antinomianism. So to understand what we mean and why these must go, we really have to understand something about the rise of fundamentalism in the evangelical movement of the early 20th century and beyond, and then some of the fundamentalist strategy that went along with it. Right? The church at this time was faced with a growing challenge from higher critical theological liberalism. This is a theological liberalism that had really been growing up out of the Enlightenment and, well, we could call it the Endarkenment, and the, 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 the secularism that was running rampant all across continental Europe, England, and America. And this was challenging really everything about the Christian faith from the historicity of the resurrection to the inerrancy of scripture to the doctrine of salvation. It's basically shorning Christianity of all of its supernaturality. So in one example, the theological liberalism of the famous Tübingen School, which was a school of liberal German New Testament theologians founded by F.C. Bauer, they applied Hegelian philosophy to New Testament study, which applying Hegelian philosophy to anything is always a bad idea. Like if, oh, <laughs> those Hegelians. <laughs> that's right, Dan. That's so right. for those who don't know what Hegelian well, philosophy <laughs> is, maybe you could... Really simply, you've got, you know, thesis, antithesis, synthesis. This is an oversimplification, but where uh, they, they would believe that history, that arriving at philosophical truth often happens through this war of ideas between a thesis and an antithesis, and that the truth is found in a synthesis between the two. So they did that with the New Testament, essentially, and so they, they discovered, of course, a division in the early church between the followers of Peter, the Petrine school and the Pauline school of theology, that basically there were these warring factions within early Christianity between Paul's theology and Peter's theology, and that the New Testament didn't really come to its final synthesis until a hundred years in the second century sometime melding these two schools into a composite, along with all sorts of other foundational texts, the Tübingen school is whack. Yeah, but they were they were prototypical of lots of liberalism. A lot of this kind of nonsense that it's still going on today, but it was really in vogue at this time, coming into the 20th century, end of the 19th century. And so against this pressure, you might, you might put yourself in the shoes of the faithful church at that time and say, like, what should we do? Because obviously the church needs to fight against this poisonous theological liberalism. Because if, if you don't, if you just let that go, like, what do you have left? You have a a Christianity that's not even worth the name. It's, it's got no supernaturalness to it, supernaturality. It's just naturalist uh, humans coming up with theological and philosophical ideas, in, inventing the myth of Jesus against the, his, the historic Jesus. This was a lot of what was in the air in the zeitgeist at that time. So against this theological liberalism, the early 20th century saw a rise of what we now call fundamentalism, 
within the evangelical church. There's much more that we could say about fundamental fundamentalism than I will write at this moment and probably even than we will in this episode. But some of its core tenets are important to understand, right? Basically, and in a narrow sense, fundamentalism responded to the attacks of liberalism by identifying and defending what they saw as the most fundamental aspects of the Christian faith. Dan, I think you had a list of five things that they they sort of identified as pillars, right? Yeah. So fundamentalism, the movement came from a series of booklets that were printed from 1910 to 1915. And in them, they defended what they saw as five pillars of the historic Orthodox faith as like the five core pillars. And uh, probably in reaction to what was happening at the time, but the Mm -hmm. first was inerrancy. The second was defense of the biblical miracles. Then the third one was the substitutionary atonement, then virgin birth, and then the resurrection of Christ. Mm. So those were the five things that they defended in these booklets. And you'd have this broad coalition growing up around fundamentalism, Presbyterians, Baptists, within the evangelical movement that was at this point, I mean, evangelicalism is a few hundred years older, at least in its roots, than fundamentalism. But you have this almost ecumenical movement then coming together, basically saying, let's fight against this liberalism by reasserting the truth and essential nature of these core doctrines, right? And, and maybe as you hear that list, you're like, it sounds like you guys are about to criticize this. <laughs> what, are you against the resurrection? So, so like the fir- first question really, I guess, is, what is what's the danger with this kind of fundamentalism you know, obviously we're not liberals. We're, we agree with all of those, with those conclusions. So what's the danger? Maybe even a danger that the original fundamentalists didn't intend, you know, they didn't intend for their, their, their movement to go here. But, but I think there are some dangers there. What do you guys see? What's the problem? What should be aware, be, be aware of and on the lookout for? Yeah, I, I, I'm going to assume that this movement, the fundamentalist movement, was not like uh, an attempt to truncate Christianity right. to just a few tenets of the faith to say like, this is actually the only spot where we're going to defend. I'm assuming that they just picked where the battle was hot at the time. But what ended up happening is there, there's no discussion on creation on the return of Christ, um, on any of these other anthropology, yeah, anthropology, which is our battle today. Yeah. Ecclesiology, tons of issues. I mean, apparently people don't even know what a woman is. So, I mean, we've Mm. got a lot of battlefields that we're fighting right now that that wasn't the battlefield of the time. Yeah. But what, what ended up happening is when you truncate Christianity to like, what is the bare essentials that we can agree on? And this happens in ecumenical councils as well. If you get a bunch of different denominations together and they're, you know, you're like, what, what can we actually agree on? you're going to have very little ground that you can actually agree on. And then you're like, well, we'll stand on these things. And then everything else goes by the wayside. Well, you can see if you're not willing to defend creation, (laughs) what's going to happen in the church. Right. And you're going to get syncretism, which we're going to talk about more. So, so that's, I think what happened with that fundamentalist. Yeah. You you lose creation. What do you lose along with that? Like, well, all of a sudden if Genesis is mythology. Yeah. Original sin becomes really questionable. Actual Adam, actual Eve. You know, just before this, one of the theological liberal streams uh, in the 19th century was the early uh, temperance and, um, shoot, what's the movement? It was the- the uh, social gospel movement? Yeah, it was the the women temperance, Christian women's temperance union. Yeah. 
was like the first feminist movement uh, in reaction to some of the social things that were going on at the time. But their leaders at the time denied some of the creation accounts mm-hmm. because of the subjugation of, of Eve being mm. made from the leftovers of Adam from his rib, which oh. wasn't even needed. And so they're like, yeah, that's a- actually garbage. You know, so that was some of the, the reactions. They're like, wait a minute, you're cutting out portions of the creation account, you know? Yeah. Uh, and so inerrancy of scripture became important, yeah. you know, at that time. But yeah, you lose a whole bunch when you lose something like creation. Yeah. Yeah. Even pertaining to today. So I was talking to Rich Lusk about this, but you know, he said the problem with, you know, people thought for a long time, it was really a, a ploy by the enemy, I think, because for a long time people said, what, what does it matter if we're creation or evolution? And then 30 years later, they're like, you know, well, guess what? Sexuality and marriage is all in Genesis one through three. Yeah, that's right. And they're going, well, that's not history. So right. it actually does become, I think, a strategy for the enemy. When you were, Dan, you were talking about uh, these fundamentals. I think one of the things that can work against Christians, I think of like the French, you know, and that's Brian, that's your heritage. Come on. Yeah, now. that's right. Vraiment. Vraiment. I don't truly. Know, I don't know what that means. Well, verily, truly. Verily. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. French Canadian. It's very very hey. smart sounding. Uh, so is Trudeau, by the way, uh, <laughs> Canadian. Wait. So is Joan of Arc. Don't know <laughs> so if you've heard of her. Born on my nope. birthday, January 6th. Wow, that's an interesting that's right. day. You know who else was born reportedly on your birthday? I do, Dan. The yeah. Lord Jesus According Christ. According to the According Eastern Orthodox, Orthodox Church. Yeah. Yep. Is that really that's true? That's when they yeah. celebrate Christmas. Yep. So, so that's pe- pretty soon. People are going to be tweeting about this episode next week. Like Brian claimed deity because, you know, he's claiming equality with the, with the, with Christ or something. That's going to be the tweet next Ho- week. Hopefully then you have the uh, cult leader shirts already made. That's up. right. The cult leader. And then you guys can get the, I'm with the cult leader shirts. Would that's that right. Be, that'd if be you, a power If move. you're a deity, I'm out. Like <laughs> I, you're a terrible deity. You know what? Good news. <laughs> you can still be in. <laughs> you can, I have decreed that you can. 100%. What were we talking about? Deity. We were this talking is, about the French and the, that's right. And oh, this is where I was French Canadians. Yeah. Okay. Okay. That's right, Eric. Continue. There's <laughs> actually a, a profound point here, Dan. So <laughs> I think the, the French are invaded by the Germans in World War I. Mm. So what do the French do? They build the Maginot Line. So what's interesting about the Maginot Line is they're like, well, if we build this giant wall that's defensive, then they can't invade. And so what do the Germans do? They just go around it. <laughs> like the French didn't think of that. You just go around the line. We're going to build a wall. We're going to build it's a wall. It's going to be the best wall. We need to build a wall, and it has to be built quickly. And the Germans are like, we're going to go around <laughs> make the Mexico pay for it. <laughs> we're going to make Mexico. <laughs> so I think that a similar thing happens, right? In today's uh, church, what is going on is people in the conservative circles are saying, look, we need to defend justification by faith. Right. That's a big issue. We're going to fight on that issue. But you know what? Feminism isn't gospel centrality. That's not the center of the gospel. Right. So what we end up saying, and I think this is where we're going with all of this, yeah. that doesn't matter. Feminism doesn't matter. Sexuality, anthropology doesn't matter because it's not supposedly one of these central uh, theological you know, items. But what I would say, too, about those, those doctrines, wh- where do you get the idea that only these things are important? Yeah. yeah. Surely they're central to Christianity, but how is sexuality not? That would be my question. Right. Yeah, that's a great question because the danger of the fundamentalism, what we're saying, if I could just summarize, is that fundamentalism in boiling down the, the, the faith against attack, saying, well, where are we being attacked? Hey, hang on. These are really core aspects of Christianity. If you deny these, you lose Christianity as a distinct 
system of doctrine and dogmatics. And so we're going to respond to that by setting up these pillars and saying, hey, everybody, you know, sound the trumpet, Presbyterians, Baptists, everybody come far and wide and let's defend the faith here against these attacks, against these anti-supernaturalist attacks. And like Dan said, they didn't mean for this to happen, but what ended up happening, like uh, undeniably over the next hundred years, is that what? Well, all of those doctrinal positions on the outlying skirts of the emperor of the empire of Christ's empire ended up getting abandoned and not, not defended. So then all of a sudden you find out though, and I think this is where you're getting it. You find out that those aren't actually secondary things. No, like it turns out that it's pretty dang important that you get it right. What a human being is, what a man is, what a woman is the Christian doctrine of sexuality. It actually turns out that if you deny any of these things functionally in your doctrine, like let's say that you end up with some sort of revoice sort of theology or even more liberal than that, you know, some sort of gay affirming theology. Do you really have Christianity left? Even if you also affirm justification by grace alone through faith alone? No. And in fact, what a lot of those people will do as a cover, as a sort of Trojan horse is, you know, they will say Amy Bird, uh, oh, Beth yeah. Moore for the longest time. No, I'm a conservative. No, I'm a conservative. I'm a member in good standing. Right. And even now there's the center left SBC guys who are like, no, we affirm the Baptist faith and message. Therefore, CRT doesn't exist. Right. Which is absolutely nonsensical because the faith and message doesn't address CRT. Yeah. But the idea is if, well, as long as you hold to these fundamental issues, then anything else goes. And that's simply not the case. Yeah. yeah. I think a lot of this has roots in the Lutheran pietistic movement in the 17th century. How do you like that transition? Wow. That here? was good, Dan. Just own it with confidence. Own it. And so you get, I think with the fundamentalist movement, you had a group of, of churches that were like, no, we're going to fight back where the fighting is hottest. Like, go, go get them. You don't have anyone guarding your flanks though, because of this pietistic movement, which really was, um, uh, like I said, started in the 17th century. And this isn't the teachings of Martin Luther. It, it just came from the Lutheran church and kind of split out. Mm -hmm. Lutherans don't like that their names associated with this. Yeah. But essentially there was a group of folks that were sick of fighting because you got to think during the reformation, Catholic to Protestant, Protestant to Protestant, you know, there's a lot of fighting. And so they're like, we, we don't want the fighting anymore. And, and when we say fighting, we don't just mean like uh, bickering in the reformed pub about baptism. Like we were, no, they, they were, killing, I mean, they were literally killing each other. That was like, that was like every day though, you know, right. was, was, and they were killing each other. And I mean, it was, it was that, you know, temperature was, was high yeah. as far as conflict goes. Yeah. So there was that. And there was a knee jerk reaction away from what is this false distinction of head and heart, you know, like, yeah. oh man, there's so much fighting about theology and being precise in these areas of knowledge. And so it ended up being corrected towards more emotion, which, which you can see then it's not very hard to draw a fairly straight line from Lutheran pietism to the first great awakening who was, I mean, John Wesley was heavily influenced by this Lutheran pietistic movement. Mm -hmm. um, and he developed this whole Wesleyan perfectionism sort of thing where you can be sanctified on this side of eternity. Yeah. If you just follow his method, there you go the Methodist church. Yeah. And into emotionalism and revivalism. But you, you see during that time, there's such a, a de-emphasis against theological precision and against uh, debate and yeah. fighting back against some of these ideas. And it becomes more about the emotions that a person is feeling 
uh, even even at the point where there were certain churches, I, I think I said this before, that you could not be a member of unless you had a radical conversion experience. Like that was how you were, that was the gauge in which you were measured by was not your profession of faith, mm. just on espousing the truths of scripture and and of the gospel, but of your actual conversion, emotional conversion experience. Yeah. And so then you zoom out even further and and you get to where we are today, where you have this whole massive movement of Christianity that has been influenced by don't fight, be nice, have good feelings, it's just and good thoughts. You, Jesus, and maybe the Holy Spirit. That's all that matters, not politics. Well, you yeah. know what's interesting? During that movement, because the scriptures became so much more readily available because of the printing press, you know, you had to go to worship. They would actually chain their Bibles up, not because nobody could read them, but because they were worth as much as a house because they had to be handwritten yeah. or there was special printing processes. And so now people had their Bibles during this movement and individualistic faith became a lot more important and it became anti-institutional to where the corporate gathering of the church was not any longer where worship happened, but it was actually in like small groups mm -hmm. and it became more important about what you thought about the scriptures than what was said covenantally or in in worship. I know I just took us on a big tangent, yeah, no. but you can see then in the, in the early 20th century and to where we are now, where you'd get a group of guys who are like, no, we're going to push back against this thing. And they're going to narrow the focus to the, these, to where the battle is hottest. And there's nobody guarding the flanks because nobody else wants to fight. And they just let those things go eventually. Yeah. Well, isn't it, I, I want to ask this question, but isn't it just like the knee jerk reaction today uh, if there's a, an issue, what do we do? We have a conference, we get the biggest celebrities, we write a statement, you know, the whatever city statement. Yeah. We sign the statement. It's usually about things that we can all get together on. So there's that, but there's also like, you think about gospel tracks today. And I remember the, the whole movement when I was in college, kind of the campus crusade for Christ thing was what's the, people would always ask this, what's the least amount of information I could tell somebody for them to be saved. Yeah. So my question is, do you think those two things are connected? Yeah, absolutely. I, I think that they're innately connected in the sense that you can't have one for long without the other showing up. It's like, can you have theological minimalism for long without ending up with cultural syncretism and antinomianism? And I think the answer is no, because what you end up doing is you basically end up making something like secondary doctrine. First of all, you do that triage and you say, well, here's primary, secondary, tertiary doctrines. And, and that can be a helpful way of thinking, like to think, think through doctrines that way, I think can be helpful as a framework. But once you relegate secondary doctrine to the equivalent of optional accessories to the Christian faith, and that, that's what that question does. Yeah. You, you end up actually saying, functionally at least, that that doctrine isn't that important right? It's not that important. Like, can, can you be saved and, and not know anything about like Christian view of the householder sexuality? Well, sure. Yeah. Like a new convert. You're going to live a pretty immature life for right. one thing. It's but, a pretty bare, but, yeah. and so when we're talking about building the new Christendom, building culture, I mean, inherently in that question, we're talking about how do we build something big, robust, beautiful. Yeah. It, it's the complete opposite. Yeah, it's like the illustration that, that comes to mind for me and the whole time I was thinking about this episode, I, I was thinking about that scene or, or really the whole setup in, in the third book in The Lord of the Rings, The Return of the King, where you've got 
Denethor, who's the steward of Gondor, and he's charged with defending the the Empire, Gondor, until the king comes back, which has been, you know, generations and generations without a king. Obviously, we know that Aragorn is going to come take the throne, but but basically over Denethor's rule as steward, he's he's failed in his rule. Why? Well, one of the ways that he's failed is because he's failed to defend the outer defenses of the of the realm. Mm. So you have these it's clear in the book that there are these great walls and defensive fortifications on the out on the fields surrounding the inner city that have been very strong fortifications that you could put some garrisons of men there and they could defend against attack from the east from Mordor. You had Osgiliath, you had the, the garrison at the city on the river that was an important strategic place. And for multiple reasons, Denethor failing and his rule being key, the, the, the men of Gondor had failed to defend these outer positions. And so ultimately... When the enemy came, they all had to fall back into the city mm. and just allow the whole thing to be overrun. And, and there's a sense in which you could think, well, isn't that good? Because the city's the important thing. The city's, like in the cold open, isn't the house in the middle of the 5,000-acre estate the important thing? And, and yes, however, you can't have that city-long function if you don't defend the outer perimeters. You can't long keep the estate together if you don't keep the lands and keep them fruitful. Christianity's like that. Obviously, if you have uh, corruption at the heart of the empire, if you lose the heart of Christian doctrine, it, you know, for example, if you start denying that Christ rose bodily from the grave and that we're justified by grace, well, then, yeah, who cares what you do with your anthropology, sexuality, all these other things? It doesn't matter. But there's another opposite error where you can say, yeah, well, who cares about how your household is run or human sexuality or whatnot, as long as we keep that inner thing defended. But the problem is that the inner thing doesn't last long. The heart of the Christian faith doesn't last long if the rest of the body is being eaten away by corruption, right? Like a Christian who says, I, a new convert who's comes to the faith and they don't know anything about human sexuality or about the household or about all these other important things, they ought not long remain like that. Right. They can't just be like, oh, you know, someone gets saved and they're living with their boyfriend or their girlfriend or they're just like, you know, a serial adulterer <laughs> and then just continue in those things. Well, no, they need to be instructed in all of Christ for all of life. Right. You can't just leave. You can't just leave these, you know, oh, those are secondary. We're not going to worry too much about those because it's too much of a burden. Yeah, that's exactly right. One of the things that reminds me of uh, uh, pastoring in a small town. Uh, we had a town of about 2,000 people, and we had 12 churches. Um, so it kind of shows you. <laughs> there was some. Pro they were all, at one time, they were all, like, members of the same church, you know. Um, so there was a lot of splitting going on. But one of the things that they would do is they built a church alliance. And so it, I see the same thing happening with fundamentalism, now with the Gospel Coalition, just different entities uh, fulfilling the same role. But what they tried to do was band together and when they banded together, they had to create what, what I call LCD Christianity, like the lowest common denominator. Yep. Yep. Right. So Dan, that's my term. You can take it to the bank. Actually, you can't because it's trademarked. I'm trademarked. not going to use it. Don't worry. Trademark. Yeah. I'm going to steal <laughs> not that it. Good. I'm actually not tweeting it out good. right now while we're still recording so I can Do lay it. claim to it before the episode comes out. Love it. But you see the problem becomes like you want to have solidarity and you want to have unity yeah. So, so what you do is you water down the doctrine and you think you're building an alliance. But what we found and this, so this is like the practical thing. A, it, it's not creating mature people in your churches. Yeah. 
to have a minimalistic view, but it's actually also not culturally effective, which is the thing it was designed to be and to do. Right. It's really funny that you say it. I mean, that's my exact experience. This is the error I think you see modern in modern examples, like take Andy Stanley. Yeah. For example, where he's doing that lowest common denominator thing where he's like, uh, he, his tweet the other day, something about how it's not the, the Christian faith doesn't rise or fall on the truth of 66 books, but on the one event of the resurrection of Christ. So he's always talking about that. Like, I don't care if people in my church believe that, you know, that the flood of like Noah's day false dilemma. Yeah. yeah. It, it's, it's stupid though, because it's like, yeah, all we care about is the resurrection of this one Jesus who, if the flood didn't happen is a liar. Why would I care about the resurrection of a liar? Yeah. You know, Jesus affirms the, the truth of the Old Testament scriptures on multiple occasions. So Andy Stanley does this with his unhitching the Old Testament. Did you know that you could be signaling your Christian resistance to the gods of this age, especially the rainbow-colored ones, with a sweet Boniface t-shirt from kingshall.org? Did you know that? And that at the same time, you could be supporting high-quality Christian media like the Kings Hall podcast. That's right. If you head to kingshall.org, click on store there. We have a few. We have a great Boniface mug, chop, chop. It makes your coffee taste 73% better, guaranteed scientifically tested. Uh, Not really. None of that's true. Uh, We've got a Boniface tea where Boniface is chopping down a rainbow-colored tree. There is all sorts of glorious merch that you can get there to help us continue to put the time and dollars into this podcast it takes to make it happen. And also this podcast is really thanks to many of our generous supporters at patreon.com. So head to our website, click the support the show button there in the menu. And there are all sorts of ways that you can do that. Hey, you can even send us some Bitcoin and we will hodl if you'd like to help us keep doing this. But thanks for all of your support. Thanks for listening in, sharing with your friends, giving us a five-star review wherever you're listening to this podcast. And now on with the show. William Lane Craig is another example. I've literally heard William Lane Craig for, you know, years ago, I remember I I was on a thing where I listened to tons of William Lane Craig debates and read a lot of philosophy in his um, kind of genre, like that Kalam cosmological argument. Um, And it's not, there's, it's not that all of that is worthless or anything like that, but I literally remember watching debates with William Lane Craig against atheists where the debate topic would be, is it reasonable or is the statement God exists reasonable, right? And they'd be in the cross-examination phase of the debate and his opponent, the atheist, would start bringing up stuff about the Old Testament, like, oh, what, what, what about the Canaanites going in, or what about, you know, Israel slaughtering all the Canaanites and God commanding genocide, William Lane Craig? And he'd be like, oh, oh, hey, maybe you've misunderstood. Hang on. My argument wasn't that the God of the Bible exists, My argument was more modest than that. My argument was that it's reasonable to believe that there's a monotheistic eternal God. But the God I've argued for is consistent with, you know, Islam, Judaism, Christianity, some forms of Hinduism. And he would like do this slippery thing in order to not have to defend the Bible, like not have to defend the Old Testament and the sticky portions in his opinion. I don't think they're sticky at all. Canaanites totally needed killing. You know, he's like, he didn't have to defend those anymore because he had like retreated to this inner keep It's the same thing. But the problem is, you said it, Eric, it doesn't produce an actually fruitful Christian culture on the other side or Christian community or even Christian. No, 
No, I, and I think that's the thing, you know, we've said in past episodes, we're not pragmatists. However, you do have to go back historically and look and say, like, who were the people who were really effective at transforming their culture? Yeah. And you're never going to find people who are theological minimalists no. who were really effective at transforming the culture. In fact, yeah. you know, this is sort of one of the things you go back to the Great Commission, Matthew 28. Again, our command is not to teach them as little as humanly possible that they may believe and be sort of disciples. <laughs> teach them like, the bare minimum that they might be converted. Right. We we never have that. It's it's in fact, even as pastors and elders, we're called to teach the whole counsel of God. Yeah. So from cover to cover, start to finish, we want to grow people who are mature in all the scriptures. Yes. So I think this idea that you would even be aiming at a minimum is flawed. Yeah. Um. Dan, I want to ask you, though, practically and pastorally, you obviously, I, I would think, have dealt with this issue at, at very practical levels, no? Yeah. So I think mm -hmm. one thing that has been really helpful as I've grown as a Christian is the uh, being a confessional Christian, having yeah. the confessions of the faith. No creed but the Bible, Dan. <laughs> And that. And that. And also what you just is that, said. Is that not what you were? That was <laughs> just, not what I was going for. Okay. Oh, man. No, like, uh, reading the Westminster, very helpful. Yes. Yeah. My kid's catechism is probably more helpful for me at this point than it is for them. Mm. But, but having uh, historic foundations that are very robust, that aren't, yeah. especially not explicitly dealing with just the, the hot points of today. Yeah. Uh, has been really helpful. And that's actually <laughs> when we're preparing for these episodes and anytime I'm looking at reading something, I'm like the last hundred years, forget about it. Real sad. I really want to read something way older. Yeah. Real sad. So yeah, I've been reading Don Quixote. I'm almost done. I'm Ooh, almost done. Don yep. Quixote. Don Quixote. Of La Mancha. The windmills passing. Dulcinea of Toboso. Anyway. Um, <laughs> so uh, all that to say, <laughs> These uh, having, having these confessions, uh, I think is one, one area that you can definitely guard against, um, just being focused on some of these very minimalistic areas of the faith. Also, when you're, when you're counseling, this is the thing with being a pastor where you're actively counseling the sheep, you're not talking about inerrancy like most of the time, right? You this use inerrancy, a like that's point. the assumed foundation. Yep. But they're asking questions like sexuality. Yeah. Sexuality. What do I do? Or Yeah. Headship. I don't know how I should operate in my I'm, home. I'm a Christian I, husband. What do I do? Yeah. Yeah. You, you know, the Bible says that I should leave an inheritance to my grandkids. How do I do that? What are some good principles? Yeah. So anyway, you have to have range. It's, it's like, and I don't want to interrupt you for long. Heartbeat. Think about these core doctrines, like the heart of the individual that goes out. You're dead. But why is the heart pumping so that the body can do everything the body's supposed to do sure. out to the fingernails? Think fingers seem pretty secondary. If you're, <laughs> if you're freezing to death, you're right. like, well, I can lose a finger. But every other day, they're pretty important. Very important. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. <laughs> it actually fingers reminds me of, uh, I think it was Spurgeon talking about Bunyan, but he said of John Bunyan, he said, prick him anywhere and he bleeds bibbling. Yeah. And so, Brian, I've heard you use the expression... We want theology to come out of our fingertips. Yeah. Uh, we want it to show up in the way that our wives cut potatoes. Um, we want it to show up in our worship, obviously. Right. We want it to show up in the way that we cut wood for our wood making business. 
it should show up everywhere. Why is this theology out of the fingertips? Why is that so important? What does, it, what does that yeah. mean? Yeah. Well, it's like there's a great book that was written on this very subject of our episode today. It was The Uneasy Conscience of Modern Fundamentalism by uh, Carl F.H. Henry. And it's basically talking about this, how theological minimalism, good-hearted theological minimalism, led to cultural syncretism and other issues. He said Calvin felt that the Hebrew Christian tradition historically involved in articulate statement, not only of the dogmatics, he's talking about the dogmatic systematic theology, but of the social implications of redemption. And, and I think his point that he's getting at is apt. And, and it's exactly what you're talking about, that you don't actually believe something until you live in light of it. Mm-hmm. So here's the thing. You don't actually believe in justification by grace alone through faith alone until you forgive your spouse of some serious sin when they confess it to you and ask for forgiveness, right? You don't actually believe in the, and this is straight Paul. Like when Paul or says, James. or James, as you have been forgiven, so you also must forgive, Paul says to the Colossians. Until that doctrine of the grace of God comes out my fingertips, I don't believe it. I'm just like the, the servant that was forgiven $10 million debt and then goes and shakes my brother down for 50 bucks. Yeah. And it's going to show up in that, you know, that family quarrel, like that's yeah. where you're going to have to forgive others as you've been forgiven in Christ. That's right. Yeah. So one of the arguments that we have then is, is cultural or uh, theological minimalism. So just mm-hmm. boiling down the Christian faith to a few core tenets, what little do I need to believe in order to be considered a Christian yeah. will lead to other bad things yes, like cultural syncretism, yeah, which seems like a big word. I'm very pleased that I was able to pronounce it. <laughs> I think I pronounced it. No, what you what do you it. mean by cultural yeah. syncretism? This is a great question. And it's at the heart of heart of this issue because so, so here's what we're claiming with that claim that theological minimalism leads inevitably to cultural syncretism. Human beings, the way that God created us, we must follow, obey and worship some God. In everything we do, we were created to worship. And so that means that in every aspect of our humanity, we're continually being conformed to the image of some God's pattern or ideal, his law, his definition of the good, true, and beautiful. In the way that I pursue being a husband, a father, a son, a daughter, a churchman, I'm either pursuing that in obedience to God's design for that thing or, or some other God's design for that thing. So if as the Christian church, you basically, whether you do it intentionally and explicitly or just by, you know, tacit affirmation, make it seem like only these core doctrines, only believing and affirming, saying, I, yes, I believe that justification is by grace alone through faith alone. I believe that, um, you know, the resurrection was a historical fact. If you make it sound like the faith is all about that, and then you, you will make it sound like, okay, to be a Christian, what do you need to do? You just need to believe that. Okay, well, now you're a Christian. Here's the problem. Those people in your church are still human beings. So they're still going to go out into the rest of their life and have to figure out what to do in those areas of life. And so if you've given into this theological minimalism, it's not like they're just going to go live their lives neutrally. They're going to go and live their lives out on the edges of the realm, like out in their work and their vocation and their money and inheritance and sexuality and family and husbanding and father, all of that, they're going to do it in obedience to some standard, some standard of good, true, and beautiful there. So if you're not actively teaching a man, a Christian man, how to be a Christian man out to the edges of his life, like every aspect of what it means to be a man, 
he's still going to go figure out what to do. He's and what he's going to ultimately end up doing if you don't teach him to obey all Christ commanded in his masculinity and in himself is that he's going to syncretize his Christian faith with some other way of being. Right. Does that make sense? Yeah. So I know, Eric, you've pastored for a long time and you've had a lot of experience with cultural syncretism. What what sorts of things have you seen in your experience where this has taken root? Yeah, one of the things that I've talked a lot about is uh, what I call expositional cowardice. And I think it can come from a lot of these movements. Um, so I went to the Southern Baptist Seminary, and I, I went there in the early 2000s. I was very happy, proud to be there. Um, it was one of the few seminaries that was defending truth. Um, and one of the things they were most proud of was the inerrancy debates um, yeah. that Moeller had steered the seminary back to conservatism and to faithfulness to scripture. Um, and I left really before CRT got there, I think. Um, and so that, that sort of crashed down. And well, I guess, why do I bring that up? Uh, we were taught to preach a certain way on those issues. Mm-hmm. Inerrancy, you know, the pastor is somebody who is well theologically educated, all of that expositional preaching, all the things that you would expect to find in a conservative reformed, well, Baptist kind of Baptisty reformed seminary. But, but what's happened is because those guys, a lot of them didn't go out and preach on the actual issues happening in the culture. What would happen is, you know, I would realize that while my people were reading people magazine and learning how to interact with their spouse from that, like no joke. Yeah. Like literally, um, I went to prayer meetings and I remember somebody saying at a prayer meeting and, and I've heard this story from other people about soap operas, but people would come in and be like, Oh man, I just need you to pray for Harry Styles. He's had a bad breakup. And I was like, oh. I'm not even kidding. <laughs> Why so are you What's gay? Why are, Why? You, are you Where is this? Harry Styles? Come you on. Yes. Who's Harry Styles? Should I call you Mr.? Why are you gay? If I had a U.S. Harry Styles, by the way, he's the one, he was like a British pop star, but now he, he was in Dunkirk. Um, but like, he's the one who's like wearing dresses and yeah. singing on stage, like super gay. You're straighter oh. for not knowing who he is. <laughs> Yeah, you you actually are. He's not the black rapper guy. I'm no. guessing. No, 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 no. Because he's, he's that guy. You know what? Never mind. He's We're a, not going to dumpster dive. Guy. That's right. Oh, okay. White British so, guy. Gotcha. My, my point being, <laughs> what I realized was, yeah. uh, and and I think if pastors did more shepherding and more pastoral care, that would really help a lot of the preaching because you would start yeah. to realize what the issues of the day are. And it really was about things like, okay, well, you know, Dan would say like, what trough are you eating at? Yeah. You know, where are your people eating every day? And, um, and it's not even like Christian media. It's just straight garbage. I, I was talking to the hairdresser the other day and, um, I, I don't know this. What? Yeah. No, just listen. <laughs> now this is an example of it. Talking to the hairdresser and the hairdresser says to me just out of the blue, she goes, you know, what's strange. She said, I, I, I know you're a pastor at a church. And so, so I was, you know, you get weird questions. She said, uh, the Disney movie red. Nope. Okay. So it's this. Woke new movie. I haven't watched it, but it, you know, very, very woke. And um, she goes, yeah, it's really crazy. She goes, you know, I, I put it on for my kid and my kid watches it and listens to it like just all the time, every day, multiple times a day. And she goes, I think they're being indoctrinated. <laughs> and I, it was a light bulb moment. So that's what I'm saying. Like pastorally, you have to compete with that. And, yep. you know, I, I bring up the hairdresser story because a barber, I guess, is the proper term here that Dan's that, that, probably making the yeah, face at me for. It sounds better if you say barber. Yeah. Yeah. But it reminds me of Luther, right? The letter to his barber, was it? I I am. Yes. I actually don't know. Yes. Go so, ahead. So he, he wrote like this theological paper. I think it was to his barber. We, uh-huh. You know, I can look that one up. 
But it was basically like theology applied and on fire for the guy in the street. Yeah. And that's what you've got to be thinking about. You got to be thinking about what your people are actually facing on a daily basis. My, my barber is not dealing with atonement. No, generally not. That's not what's going on there. Mm -hmm. They're dealing with, you know, subtle forms of sexual perversion. Yeah. And so you have historically in the church, two ditches, Mm -hmm. right? So with the fundamentalist movement, you had core doctrines, had really important. These doctrines are really important. That's right. And kind of letting anything else fall to the wayside, which would be like applied theology, I would say. Yeah. And then at other times in history, like the temperance movement. Social gospel. Yeah, social yeah. gospel. Yeah, the holiness movement. Yeah. You have like essentially throw out doctrine because the manner of living or the applied theology is the only thing that matters. And usually that yep. means I'm going to tell you how to live because it's convenient for me or, mm-hmm. or something like that, my preferences. And what we're advocating for is actually, well, neither of those, but both of those. So it's yeah. a strong theological maximalism. Yeah. And we're going to, and we're going to unpositively unpack exactly that in the next episode. I think it's funny. You just almost said exactly. So on page 22 of the uneasy conscience of modern fundamentalism, Carl F. H. Henry makes that exact point about social gospel. Cause he also talks about the social gospel. He talks about how fundamentalism was reacting to both the social gospel and liberalism. But he says that in revolting against the social gospel, they seemed also to revolt against the Christian social imperative. So you end up with people trying to fight the social gospel where it's like, you know, just different. This would be like critical race theory would is like a today's version of the social yes. gospel. Yes. You know, we're going to fix racism and we're going to fix ethnic hostility and we're going to do it with critical race theory. And Christians yeah. are like, yeah. Okay. So then I won't talk about it because we're going to talk about it next episode, I guess. Don't, don't cut but, our feet out, man. But the, no, the thing is, I just wanted to make sure that it didn't sound like we're saying, actually, mm-hmm. you know, theology is important. Yeah. Put that off to the side. But we actually have to go and just firefight. Like, that's the goal. Yeah. You know, is to just, oh, this person's dealing with this. We got to address this. That person. No, 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 no. No, mm. there's, there's actually more going on there. You have the uh, theological maximalist position, wanting to know who Christ is, who, the, who God is, and every part of his, his creation down to the bottom, and then apply it day to day. And, and part of that is actually starting fires, Doug Wilson, and, and not just being a firefighter. Yeah. So I just wanted to make that clear yeah. that we weren't, because it's easy to just say, uh, be reactionary and say, well, critical race theory is happening, theological liberalism and so what we need to do is actually do what the pietists did and say, we shouldn't be fighting theological battles necessarily, but mm-hmm. we should be pl- just fighting, you know, like applied theology. Mm. Like just don't do this. Stop doing that. Put, stop putting that thing there. Right. And you know, that's, Oh yeah. We're just going to throw, we're going to throw out like actual doctrinals because Hey, it doesn't matter if your barber knows the atonement. Well, he needs to know the atonement and he needs to know how to live his life in every, like the point is both. Yes. Yeah. It oh. needs to be thick. And I would say, and the reason I brought up what I did, Dan, you're absolutely right. I think in reform circles, we're typically strong on, say, the five points of Calvin. Like, people are strong on that. And then yeah. you just look at the typical sermon in reformed churches. It's like 47 minutes of doctrine and a minute and a half of throwaway application. 
Well, that, which that, is basically yeah. like, yeah, believe Jesus, and you know, that leads us to to another point, which I think is really interesting. If you guys are ready to move on yeah. from cultural yeah. syncretism, yeah. Yeah. which we could talk about a lot. I mean, the I've heard uh, Toby Sumter say that the the walls of the church are um, are uh, they have holes in them. Mm. They're like a sieve. Yeah. That's what it is. Yeah. So culture comes in and out. Mm-hmm. Anyway, yeah. we could talk a lot about that, but antinomianism. Yeah. That's, that's another thing that we're asserting is yep. that this theological minimalism leads to antinomianism because Eric, to, to piggyback on what you said, a lot of times in the reformed world, you've got these big brain guys, right? And they've got lots of dusty books that they've read. And as soon as you give an application in a sermon, right. That's justification by, by works. That's well, you, legalism you, or that's, yeah. you know, whatever it is. It's like guys that can give a 50 minute sermon in detail, going through the doctrine of limited atonement and how it's and how it uh, makes sense of and harmonizes all these different passages of scripture, do some intricate historical theology, biblical theology, systematic theology, and then you after the sermon you say, Pastor, that was a, a great sermon. I noticed your daughter was in the front row wearing a mini skirt. Your thoughts? <laughs> yeah, and he's scary. like, what? What? Like he gets you know the faraway professor look, and and you're like. And my point is there's a disconnect somewhere there between his doctrine and his life. Yeah. And that gets back to what we were saying, like the, the theology coming out of your fingertips. I think first of all, maybe just define what is that formal antinomians. And we've experienced this in, in counseling and in um, opponents that, that even have risen up within the church and have criticized, like, you know, for example, I preached a sermon on money once from the Proverbs and I was, you know, I said, almost verbatim something like one of the, 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 the ways a Christian answers the wrong use of money is with the right use of money, right? So in one of the ways, if you're, if you're greedy, the Christian response isn't just to stop being greedy. It's to stop being greedy by using your money rightly, by being generous and, and wise and saving and, and working hard. And I, and I had a guy, literally, I remember, who said, Brian's illegal, like brought charges against me. He said, Brian's a legalist. And we were like, okay, well, what's your evidence? Give give us some evidence. Do you have anybody else who saw this legalism? Is the legalism in the room right now with us? And uh, <laughs> he, he pulled that sermon out and he, he quoted that section. He's like, see here, Brian's, Brian's a legalist. He just said that, you know, Christians have to use money, use rightly. money rightly. The answer to the wrong use of money is the gospel. It's not using money rightly. That's works righteousness. Jesus used money rightly on your behalf. On my and behalf. so I don't have to do that. <laughs> so legalism can, can be a formal rejection of the use of the Old Testament law in any sense. It, legalism can also be someone who rejects the application of the New Testament moral instruction. Well, you know, Sinclair Ferguson uh, uh, wrote a book, The Whole Christ. Whole Christ which is really good. And it's about the uh, marrow controversy. And he talks in there about how antinomianism inevitably is legalism. Yeah. They're, they're not just polar opposites. Yeah. Because you're going to be ruled friends. by a law. Yeah. So, yeah. And if so you don't the law, use God's law, Brian, you cannot preach about money in that way. <laughs> yeah. You cannot tell people to use money rightly, yeah. which just seems like a, I, vi- I violated their argument. law. Yeah. You violated a law, Yeah, yeah. which is legalism because yeah. I challenge you to find, Chapter and verse, buddy. What's interesting, too, I I would also point out that antinomianism is a formal heresy in the church. So it's important. So the question is, are you know, today is, are people actually practicing it? 
And and are, if so, are we burning I, people for the? It it is actually a heresy burned burning at the stake. Burning? Yeah, okay. Dan actually said that, not me. I um, but one question? thing one thing I will add though, um, this was prominent in Elise Fitzpatrick, Paul Tripp. That's right. People like that. Um, Tulian Chavidian was big on this. This yep. um, it was really a Lutheran conception of you know Elise would say something that is, I mean, it's bedrock a lot of Lutheran theology. Yeah. Every time you read the scripture, you're either reading a passage on law or grace. It's law or gospel. And the <sighs> only function of the law is to kill. So <sighs> I would talk to, I talked to a Lutheran pastor for a long time who believed this. And I said, do you believe that the law has a purpose to instruct in righteousness? And he said, absolutely not. Oh. And I said, so do you believe as a Christian, you can love your neighbor? And he goes, no. And that was never the point. No, your podcast didn't stop working. We're just all dumbstruck. <laughs> We're just all dumbstruck. So there are really people who believe this in one form or another. Yeah, that's formal. That is a hard formal. antinomianism. Yeah. But then you get into like Elise Fitzpatrick. I think the book is called Give Them Grace. She says the exact same thing. That yeah. Everywhere in scripture you look, it's either law or gospel. Mm -hmm. So when we parent, et cetera, it forms us. My, my point in this is antinomianism has worked its way into the mainstream of crossway popular reform Christendom. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, antinomianism exists on a spectrum like a lot of things where you, you have all the way to formal heretical antinomianism. Where if, if you actually affirm that statement, by the way, if you deny that the law has any value in instructing the believer in righteousness, you are a heretic. That is heresy. You are actually a heretic because you're, and the reason that you're a heretic is because you are, exp if that is true, the Bible is false. That's correct. Right. If that is true, the Bible is false because the scriptures tell us old and new Testament that one of the purposes of the moral instruction in scripture is to instruct the people of God in actual righteous living. We're told, think about the nature of the new covenant. Even the, the promises of the new covenant, Ezekiel 36, 26 and 27, Jeremiah 31, 31. These promises were not just that God would take our sin away from us and take out our heart of stone and give us a heart of flesh, but they go on to say, and write my law on your heart and put my spirit in you and cause you to walk in my ways. So, so the Christian is actually going to, God is working in us to will and to work for his good pleasure. And what antinomians want to do is anytime a pastor or a Christian exhorts somebody, basically reads a passage of scripture that says thou shalt or thou shalt not, and then tells Christians practically, well, ladies, I'm going to give you a good example here. <clears throat> this is one that will get you canceled today. Ladies, uh, Paul says, wives, see that you respect your husbands. Now what I'm going to do for the next 15 minutes of this sermon is I'm going to practically in detail explain using practical examples from the actual life that you live what it might look like. A, to disobey that command. Here's the tone of voice you ought not to use. Here are the words you ought not to use. Here's the attitude you ought not to have. Here's the sassiness you ought not to have. And here's what it looks like practically to respect your husband. And now I'm going to explain. So I'm going to give you the doctrine. I'm going to explain it and land it practically. And then I'm going to call you to obedience to it in the name of Jesus. But actually, Brian, Big Eva wants to respond to you. Jesus wants the rose! <laughs> Jesus wants, Dan, Jesus, why do you not look amused? Are you not entertained, Dan? No. I'm entertained. No, I'm not entertained. So, so then it comes to, okay, so what you're saying then, what you're saying, Brian. What you're saying then? Is that you're saved by your righteous living. Are you Federal Vision? <laughs> oh, are you, okay. are you saved by your covenant <laughs> oh, faithfulness? Dear, I think you oh, are. Dear. 
Wow. 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 See, that's the funny thing is that that's what the antinomian wants to do is they want to just immediately reduce your applicational sermon or brotherly exhortation. Cause this isn't just pastors. This is like our life. When you're a Christian, you're do you actually, your brother, when, when you answer the question, um, am I my brother's keeper? The answer is yes, I am my brother's keeper. I'm called to exhort him as long as it's called today, not to wander, you know, not to let his love grow cold. If anyone's caught in a trespass, you are spiritual. Restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness. Galatians Spur him on to love and good works. Yeah, love and good works. So, you know, what we are works, his workmanship. Law, law works. Ephesians, law. Ephesians <laughs> were, were Christ's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which he's laid out before us that we should walk in them. It's, it's interesting, though, because, Dan, you, I actually think you bring up a really good point um, in your mocking jest against Brian, which I appreciate as well. We're all here. Well, for you're it. next. We're here for the. <laughs> we're, we're all here for the ratio. But one of the things that, that I really do actually like is I we we said some things in one of the past shows that were basically bedrock Presbyterianism, believing that your children are in the covenant is one of them. Yeah. But one of the things I think that theological minimalism does is that it makes people just helpless and clueless in the culture. So I had people saying to me, "Well, if you believe your children are in the covenant, that means your federal vision." My immediate thought to that was, like, my my gut reaction was like, this is how far we've strayed from an actual reformed Christendom. And another phrase that Brian uses all the time, I think is applicable here, which is reformed Catholicity. Yeah. So I kind of want to know about it. Yeah, you want to know about reformed Catholicity? Because so a lot of the time when we're describing our vision for the Christian faith at our, the church, we'll say, we actually talk about theological minimalism to our church pretty frequently. We say things like, we don't want theological minimalism. We want, and this is the next episode, as we build a more positive case, we're going to build a, a, a model for what we'd call instead theological maximalism and cultural maximalism. And the way that I think that you hold that together let me, let me back up a little bit because there's a danger I think fundamentalism fell into that would explain this better. Think about that moment in the early 20th century. Fundamentalists are coming together against liberalism. And just by the nature of the coalition across evangelicalism, they had Presbyterians and Baptists and all kinds of different people coming together to fight against the liberalism of the day, which is great. Like, I'm all for that. But what tended to happen as they did that is that the way they went about that coalition actually kind of ended up with theological minimalism because they sort of asked like, which things do we agree on? What can we all agree on? And the, one of the reasons they ended up with that list of five tenets wasn't just because those happened to be the things the liberals were attacking. It was also like what they could agree on. Yeah. And so I'm firmly of the opinion that the new, the new Christendom that we're trying to build is going to be reformed. It's going to be a, a, a new Christendom built on reformed Catholicity, meaning that it's going to come out of the great stream of the reformed faith, which finds its expression in lots of different nuances and even theological disagreement across different issues. Like you have reformed Presbyterianism, Congregationalists, Lutherans, certain streams of Anglicans. You've got reformed particular Baptists coming out of this stream and in, in, in all sorts of, and they're all developing in lots of different Still nuances. diversity. Still diversity there. But 
all of those traditions can actually agree on a huge breadth of things, a huge breadth of things, and not just this really uh, like deracinated, very you know minimalistic, stripped down couple core tenets about like the resurrection of Christ. Like if we're talking about this this Reformed Catholicity, we're talking about a big, broad, powerful river, right? And there's a lot of nuance within it, and a lot of different tributaries going in and out. But the central flow of the river within Reformed Catholicity is a powerful, powerful river of, of the Christian faith. So when we say theological minimalism, we're criticizing what I would call more like a creek, like a trickling creek there at the middle. And I'm like, you need more than that. You need more than just these five things. You need something bigger, something that actually speaks to all of life. And my conviction is, is that the answer to that is going to be the Reformed faith. It's going to be this great big river of confessional Reformed Christianity. Yeah, one of the things that we've talked about, and Dan, maybe I get your take on this, but this feeling that we're on the brink of, I don't know if you call it a revival, reformation, but one of the things that I find interesting, at least a couple times a day, a dozen times a week, I have people messaging me who are interested in dominion theology, reform theology, yeah. um, guys who you would have never thought. But I think a lot of people in this moment are waking up to, we need to be doing something about the culture. I was talking to a friend who's, you know, hardcore dispy dispensationalist. And uh, he said the other day, he was like, you know, I, I'm really interested in dominion theology. And I said, why? And he said, I'm tired of getting my butt kicked. <laughs> yeah, it's a loser mentality. It is loser king sitting so, on yeah. the throne. So do you think there's, I do, but do you think there's hope in this moment that people are pushing toward theological maximalism? Yeah. So, so the three of us sitting in a room right now are not by accident. Obviously everything happens according to God's providence, but the products that, that we are, we were not, I mean, this is not by accident um, that we are formed in this particular moment. I'm not, man, that sounded like uh, all of a sudden we're deities like, like, like Brian, what, I, what I'm saying, <laughs> no, it's more like uh, we were formed, informed by certain teachers. Yes. And there's a certain movement happening. And I'm convinced it's not a revival. It's not a revival. I think it is a reformation. Yeah. It's reforming something. And I think one of the tenets is going to be reformed Catholicity. Yeah. Because one of the, uh, I'm going to get to your question. One of the problems that we've had within the last 500 years of church history is hyper schismatic yeah. people in the reformed faith. And obviously you see why like in the mega church world or in, in a acts 29, more loose sort of, you, you just agree on these very few state statements, SBC sort of the same thing, just a few things that you have to agree on and you're in. Um, you can see why those churches can partner together and why the reformed churches are like, well, oh, we're going to do the, the, this PCA, the well, PCUSA, even- the you know, whatever, yeah. all I was even these divisions. Say, and you look at the reconstructionist movement with oh, yeah. Gary North yeah. Rush. That's like, like schismatic was like the thing they were good at. There, there was it's, like five versions like of it within of 10 years. Yeah. It's a gift. Well, it's, it's a, a lot of the Presbyterian denomination, a lot of the reformed denominations have like hundred thousand members, 50,000 members. And right. then the SBC yeah. has like 60 million. And I know uh, I, I use PCA, PCUSA. That was terrible. Cause obviously one was like, no, we yeah. want PCUSA. Yeah. Like, they might as well be Hindu. Right, right. They're not Christian. And so, so what, I, what I'm trying to say <laughs> is that I think what's happening is you're seeing a rising wave and we're just 
you know, as some of us are, are just kind of on the tip of this wave where God is going to move. And I think it's going to be the next generation, you know, Lord willing, like we see lots of people come to faith in Christ. Yeah. Lots of people who are, are like, what in the world is going on right now? I mean, we've got some insane things happening in the world around us at this moment. And I mean, unprecedented to the point where maybe the 1970s, 60s, I think probably World War II, you know, is, is closest to, to this social upheaval that we've had where people are like, what is going on? I need answers. And I think that this reformed, the reformed faith is going to see a resurgence and a, yeah. a reformation that is going to, you know, have massive change yeah. in the next 150 years. And the thing that gives me hope is that you see before Martin Luther in the Reformation, and you've got Jan Hus, who's like, yeah, I'm not going to listen to the Pope. It's the scriptures alone. And they burn him at the stake, you know, and, and then you've got other men, um, Wycliffe, who was um, translating the Bible and giving it to the people. Uh, you've got lots of men like that before Martin Luther came. And then God uses this one guy and he's a PhD before he even becomes a Christian, which is insane. And uses this guy to start a movement, you know, and within a hundred years, you have thousands of churches, mm-hmm. thousands of churches across Europe. And so it gives me hope. Was that, that Rob Bell? Why did why I was on a roll, man? I was on a roll. John Calvin. John Calvin. Say his John, name. Say John, his name. John Calvin. Mm. John Calvin was one of the greatest church planners in history. Mm. I mean, the number of churches that were planted from his students in France is absolutely unbelievable. What a yeah. great pastor, great man. Yeah. Named my uh, third born son after him. And so I think that you know, we're just part of a small part of what's going Beginning. on, just products of this, Yeah, not leaders in it. You know, th- there are other men that are, that are doing that, but Lord willing in, th- in the next 50 years, we'll see this wave come across Christianity because what's happened since COVID in 2020 is you saw the great unveiling, yeah. an yep. apocalypse, apocalypse, an apocalypse within Christianity to where uh, this is no surprise to anybody that's been paying attention. You had churches that were like, yeah, we're not going to meet. We're not going to worship the holy and living God. Mm. We're going to refuse to do that. Yeah, for like we're going to listen to the years. state. Who are, who are you obeying? You're mm. obeying the gods of the state and not the holy and living God. Yeah. And so you see this great unveiling, this apocalypse has happened. And what's going to be the fallout? What's going to be the fallout with this turning away from a lot of the, the facade Christianity the syncretism, the theological minimalism, yeah. the antinomianism, where they're like, God's law, be damned. I'm, that's legalism. Why would you put that on me? I think that you're going to see people that want to know the truth. Mm-hmm. They're sick of the lies and the propaganda. You don't even know where to go to get truth at this point. Like, what's actually happening in the world? They, they realized that theological minimalism was not enough. It, it didn't give them the tools that they needed to navigate their actual lives in the face of this other God that was telling, that was bossing them around, Mm. which was the state. I mean, it's been the state at this point. We have ascendant statism that has resulted from rampant autonomous or atomistic individualism. So of course, if you worship a human being as the absolute 
God of all things. You're, the state is just a human being writ large. You're going to end up worshiping the state. And Christians realize through this apocalyptic event, the unveiling, that's what apocalypse means. It just means to unveil or to reveal. So they realized that their minimalism wasn't enough. They needed, they needed a Christian faith that actually told them how to navigate the actual details of their lives. And, and then what's amazing is that they realized that the scriptures actually were sufficient. The scriptures actually had enough in them. Like the Christian faith is thick enough. It can teach you how to live all of your, it's a to, Christianity is a totalizing faith. It te, Paul says in, in, uh, to Timothy, he says that the scriptures are not only breathed out by God and profitable, but that they can equip the man of God for every good work. Which good work? Every one of them. Every one. So that means every political good work, every sexual good work, every familiar yeah. good work, every human good work, every single aspect of your life, there's never a situation you will find yourself in, according to Paul, where the scriptures will not give you, either by direct command or good and necessary consequence, the tools that you need to obey God and do good works in that situation. Theological minimalism functionally denies that. It leaves Christians rootless and ill-equipped to face the real situations of their day. So what I think I, what I think is going to be the linchpin and I, we can save this for a different episode is obviously the gospel is, has to be preached. Yeah. We the don't just agree with that. Men. The gospel makes new men, new men that believe in the post mill hope. Boom. That's what I think is going to be the big change. That's what's going yeah. to bring the wave is because for the last 150, 150 years, not even that long dispensational premillennialism has taught Christians to fight to lose. Yeah. To fight to lose and not in accordance with the scriptures. To fight the long defeat. To fight the long defeat. That's yeah. right. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. And the last thing I'll say is we're talking about theological maximalism. What is it for? You know, we, we talk a lot about fighting the culture, but this is something I was struck by this week uh, by a G.K. Chesterton quote. Ultimately, we're fighting to build a culture. You can't, Doug Wilson said, you can't fight a culture war without a culture. Yeah. And it was G.K. Chesterton who said the true soldier fights not because he hates what is in front of him, but because he loves what is behind him. And yeah. so, Dan, I think that's so important. You're talking about past generations. When I was thinking about the Christendom that we're building, I was honestly just picturing all of our children's faces. And I yeah. was like, it's for them. You yeah. know, you have that They're scene. They're based, by the way. You have that scene all of the of Black kids. Gates where yeah. Aragon turns around and he says for Frodo. Yeah. For Frodo. In the movie. And literally, I, it may sound a little cheesy, but I was literally like, this is for Calvin. Yep. And yep. Daphne. And Baron. And Ari. Yep. Benjamin. This is for them. I would die for them. Yep. That's the bottom line. Yeah, absolutely. They're going to be so based. My, my boy came up to me today and I'm wearing our uh, Chop Chop shirt, our Boniface shirt that is like the Boniface oak. But our designer, for some reason, made the, the trees dropping down rainbow colored. I don't, That's I don't weird. Know. Skittles? Must have been a mistake. Rainbow? I don't know what he's, what he's inferring. And uh, a little girl named Harper came up to me and, and she said, she's one of our St. Brennan students. She said, Pastor Brian, uh, what is that on your shirt? Is that a, is, is that a popsicle? Cause the tree looks kind of like one of those rainbow popsicles. And I was like, no, no, it's a, and before I could finish the sentence, my, my oldest boy Ari comes up to me and he goes, it's a gay tree. <laughs> He's chopping, down, He's the chopping tree. down the gay tree. And I was like, uh, hang on, Ari. Yeah. I, yeah. Harper. It's a symbol of one of the false gods that uh, the Lord is going to defeat with his gospel. And he's like, it's a gay tree. Like, he, <laughs> So we, we're fighting, like we're fighting, building, feasting, doing it all for the sake of the generations, for the generations that are coming out of us. 
for, for we're not fighting out of hatred. We're fighting out of love for what, for God and what he's done for his people, even for our enemies. We want to see them converted. So Jack talk about it next week. Yes. So, so next week we're going to talk about this, that, you know, how can we defend the faith without becoming theological minimalists, schismatics, separatists, syncretists, theological liberals, or even just, you know, minimalistic fundamentalists. How can we do that? And our answer is a theological and cultural maximalism that comes out of an optimistic, reformed Catholicity that is self-consciously in the business of applying all of Scripture to all of life, meaning the whole of Scripture to the whole domain of human existence, and actually expecting that to work And as we do so, playing offense, going and attacking the pagan gods because God is putting them under our feet, playing offense. So next week and in our next episode, Lord willing, you'll hear us talk more about that where we'll stop just attacking theological minimalism, but we'll we'll put our money where our mouth is and we'll say, here's what we're trying to build here in Ogden, Utah. Here's what we believe that you should be aiming to build. Here's what we believe you should throw your whole life, all of your strength, all of your time, all of your gifts every breath that you have into pursuing. So thank you as always for listening to this episode of the King's Hall. If you haven't already, you can follow us on Patreon. We put out an episode every time there, a special patrons only episode called After Hours that we believe you'd really enjoy. We're going to hit stop on this recording and we're going to start recording that one. A little bit more informal, funny, really fun conversation. Sometimes I do Chippewa accents, uh, or sorry, actually Ojibwe it you was are Chippewa. I am part Chippewa, you know, so. But they spoke Ojibwe. They spoke. Ojibwe is like the means of people. It's this, you know, broad coalition of multiple tribes, including the Chippewa. Oh, anyway. Yes. Yeah, so, wow. <laughs> wow. This is a really long outro. Thank you for listening. Jump on Patreon. Go buy a, you know, a gay shirt on our website <laughs> if you haven't already. And we will see you next time in the King's Hall.